0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning.
1: When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. Before we start, if you guys could just help us out in podcast
2: land a little bit, we are running a survey. It is at voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Uh, Getting input from you about what we're doing here is really important to the future. So voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Limestone is one of the most interesting characters I know on the internet, and it was great. He was in town. I was able to sit down and talk to him about uh, babies, basically, and what we know about how policy could impact uh, families' fertility decisions. It's really interesting stuff. Um, I think you are going to learn a lot. This is not something we talk about a lot in liberal circles, but it's really important. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here today with Lyman Stone. Uh, He is a senior fellow at the Institute of Family Studies, an adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, a great Twitter personality, uh, writer, thinker, and we are here to talk about babies.
3: My favorite topic.
2: Sure. So the birth rate has fallen record low. I find most people, when they see that, they just assume. Well, if people are having fewer kids, American people, uh, it's because they they want fewer kids than they had in the past.
3: Yeah, this is this is usually when you say, "Well, birth rates have gone down," and people say, "Wasn't well, that a good thing?" Because uh, because that just means you know that people are having the kids they want. They want less, and who can judge that? Uh, but practically speaking, this isn't true. We have a very large number of surveys that ask. Uh, men, women, everybody, how many kids do you want to have? How many kids do you desire to have? How many kids is ideal to have? We have lots of ways of asking this question. Um, but they always come back pretty much the same thing. People want somewhere between 2.1 and 2.6 kids on average. Right now, they're likely to have about 1.7 so this is not about people wanting fewer kids.
2: Right. So uh, the first time I read this, I was like, this is a little dumb, but maybe we're just explaining to everyone. It's not like anyone is saying, I want 2.6 kids, right? So it's no. like the general social survey, it asks people, like, what's the ideal yeah. size of family? Some people say zero kids, mm-hmm. not that many. Um Larger number of people say one, some say two, some, some say, three. say three, some say like twelve. Right? And you think really? <laughs> um. But so you statistically average it out, right? Yeah. yeah and it's exactly. like a typical person wants yeah. two or three yeah. children, more yeah, or less. Exactly. Right? And you know there there are some weird answers, right?
3: So you get the person who says they want thirty-seven children, and you think, well, how do I average that? Um, and then you also get the person who uh, says, well, as many as you want to have. Sure. You say, well, that's what I'm trying to ask you. <laughs> um, so you, you do have to have a little bit of like creativity, like how do you account for um, unrealistic outlier responses and how do you account for what we call non-numeric responses to these questions? But there's a huge like uh, methodological literature on this, and it, it really doesn't matter how you count it. It doesn't matter how you phrase the question. I mean, it does matter. It changes it a bit, but there's no way to cut the data. There's no way to phrase the question and get um, and get an outcome below two kids per woman.
2: Right. And so you would expect, you know, some people want to have kids, want to have more kids, but they sure. have fertility problems. Sure. And so they don't. On the flip side, some people may have two or three kids yeah. and be done, but there's an accident. Uh, <laughs> uh, People are, yeah. they're, they're, they're people who don't yeah, want to have there's abortions. So, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you, you expect some errors on sure. both sides, but we fall consistently about one baby per woman below for a number of years now.
3: Right now, uh, on average, uh, we're at about 1.7 right now, uh, expected lifetime fertility. And the desired rate is around 2.3. So, we're about 0. 0.6 uh, kids below. So, I hate saying like 0.6 kids because there's not really a 0.6 child. <laughs> so I think you can think of this as for every 10 women in America, there would be six missing children, mm-hmm. right? Um, which to me sounds pretty significant. Uh, but this is much larger than it's been in the past. From 1990 to, to 2007, uh, I was about uh, two missing kids for every 10 women. Um so this is a pretty recent thing really since
2: 2007 that this gap has really
3: exploded. And
2: it's it's interesting because it's a it's a subtle difference, right? Like as you say like it comes down to point, point 0.6 seconds mm-hmm. which is a weird thing to talk about. Um uh, but it's not it's not the difference between like everybody has the kinds of families we have today versus everyone has like giant uh, right. hutterite families. <laughs> it's like the occasional second or third or sure. fourth child sprinkled here and there among right. what we would still be recognizably modern sure. post-demographic transition.
3: Absolutely. Households. We're not talking about a difference between modernity and traditionalism or between the Amish or something. We're talking about people in, you know, one to three child families, and there just happened to be more people now who wanted that third and just weren't getting it. Life didn't work out for them that mm-hmm. way. It's just... Um, you could say it's just sort of one of those disappointments of life that's in the background of people's thinking somewhere.
2: And so what do we know about why this is?
3: Most research on this question doesn't look at the fertility gap per se. Mm-hmm. It looks at just birth rates in general. Mm-hmm. Now, luckily, uh, desired fertility is highly stable. So <laughs> these are basically the same thing. So what we know is that the main reason fertility has declined in America, and by fertility, I just mean... a Uh, actual birth rates, not biological fertility, um, is uh, changes in marriage behavior. Mm -hmm. That is, once you account for marital status, just pure change in composition by age of uh, of married people, uh, it turns out that fertility today is almost exactly what it was in 2000. Um, Now, it's lower than it was about uh, 10 years ago because it kind of rose after 2000, but it's most of the change we can see uh, is basically just a, a change in who's married. Okay. So, so wait, what does that mean a change like people are married older people are married older they're less likely to be married at any given age okay now once you get to like age 45 the odds of being married are pretty much the same mm-hmm. also once you get to age 45 the odds of having an additional child are fairly low mm-hmm. um, so among ages where biological uh, ability to conceive a child are highest marriage rates have consistently fallen uh, for the last uh
2: Sixty years, uh-huh. and then then birthright. So it's like people want to, obviously not all people, uh, mm-hmm. but but many people would like to get married, would yeah. like to have children, would like to get married and then have children. Yeah. Traditional bourgeois right. life script, right. but the success sequence. This is what <laughs> what many
3: people intuitively think their life will be or should be.
2: And I, I mean, what's interesting is in many cases, in fact, is yeah, of just course, sort of. Five to ten years later than right. it might have been, exactly in the seventies.
3: Right. This is exactly what it is that that we actually see people, uh, in some sense, following this sort of life script more consistently than in the past. That mm-hmm. you know, divorce rates have fallen, um, pregnancy rates out of wedlock are actually going down, mm-hmm. um, and we see uh, teen childbearing in particular has plummeted, which is you know a I think we're all cheering for that one. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so we see that really people are avoiding sort of the the big deviations from this this life script more than in the past. But by uh at the same time that they are avoiding those what they might perceive as errors in how they planned their – they hoped their life might be. It's just taking longer to get the things that they do want.
2: Right. And I mean this is like if anyone out there listening, like if you were around for like 1990s politics, there was like a big social concern about essentially like – I guess you would call them, like, like, deviant behaviors sure. that like people were either there were there were teenagers who were having kids, there were unmarried people right. who were having kids. um, and there was a a lot of of social concern. this was right. being linked, um, I, I think, in some intuitive ways to child poverty and in some slightly loopy ways to, like, really big cultural anxieties. And we have done a good job of sort of, Turning yeah. turning the, the, the ship around on that. And I mean it's interesting when it comes to to marriage because of course I think people want to be responsible with sure. their lives, right? They don't mm-hmm. want to um just like get married at 16 right. and then get divorced at 25. Right. Um so they are going to college. Yeah, and these are all reasonable things. Graduating. The problem is that
3: marriage, you know, well, if you look at uh, the opioid epi- epidemic, mm-hmm. your odds of dying of an opioid o- overdose are rather different if you're married than if you're single. Hmm. We talk a lot about these um, sort of middle-aged white males, mm-hmm. but the demographic that's, if you look beneath that, this is basically unmarried. Hmm. What we're talking about is unmarried people. Okay. Um, the Delayed marriage, you look at increased episodes of depression. Mm-hmm. This is almost entirely explained by unmarried people, Hmm. Um, that a lot of what we're seeing with these sort of objectively observed um, uh, things that many of us think are not great in society, increases in suicidal ideation, increases in depression, increases in attempted suicide, increases in deaths of despair. They have many, many, many different sources, um, but they also seem to track with um, changes uh, in people's odds of being married. Now, hmm. we don't want to rush people into marriages that are going to end in a divorce uh, six years later, and perhaps with a child who now breaks up, uh, grows up in, you know, a home that's at greater risk of housing instability and poverty, and these sorts of things. Like, we don't want to encourage people to make life choices they themselves regard as irresponsible. But I think we also want to figure out: is there a way that we can that we can uh, accelerate uh, people's ability to achieve the life goals that they themselves desire and regard as responsible.
2: Right. And you see, I mean, I think the point about the opioids and, and the suicide and things like that sure. is that marriage is a um, an emotional resource for yeah. people. I mean, among other it's things. It's a
3: material emotional resource. Also, if there's someone in your life who when you, when you start down that path, they go, hey,
2: this this is not good. Yeah, right. I mean, it's somebody somebody watching your back, right. um, helping you out, but also maybe yelling at you sure. um, if 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 that's what you need. Um, and and so, but one of the things that's happened, right, is the the economy is different mm-hmm. from how it used to be. Exactly. And it's human capital driven. Right. So you're told that if you want like a good job and to make a good living, you should go to college, mm-hmm. um, which. A lot of people do. Yep. Um, I it, did. I, I, I believe you did. <laughs> I did. Um, most most people I know did, um, and that just like that takes four years of your life, mm-hmm. right? And then and you, then there's grad school,
3: right? Because for some people, you know, yeah. to get to get that you know climbing white collar job, there's grad school or law
2: school or medical school or whatever. Yeah, or even you know, like in in journalism, right? I did I didn't do any kind of grad school, but you do a. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't even formally call it an apprenticeship, but it's like it's exactly, understood yeah. that if you want a career in journalism, yep. you have to work for several years mm-hmm. in extremely low-paying jobs, and a lot of the people who do that won't make it, and you'll right. you'll shift careers. And it, it's
3: difficult to to marry and form stable life during that time of your life,
2: right? Because yeah. you don't a you don't have much money, mm-hmm. but also like if. Whether you're a grad student or you're just in some kind of entry-level position, if you know that you need to keep your sort of options open in life, Mm -hmm. right? Like you might need to move to a different city. Then why put down roots? Right. Well, and you don't want to tie yourself down.
3: So this story really makes a lot of sense. Um, The only problem with it uh, is that empirically white-collar people are getting married at the same rates they always were. And actually at similar ages. Interesting. Um, the big change is among working class people. The big decline in marriage is not, frankly, it's not folks like you and me. Okay. It's people with less degrees and less income. And so my intuition is always like, oh, yeah, it takes a long time to do college and graduate school and everybody <laughs> uh-huh. does that, right? Well, no, like 70% of Americans don't do that. Right. <laughs> so, okay. So then those those are the people that, have, that are having this decline in marriage. So what is it? Well, there is still an extended Entree into your kind of peak earning. We do see that even less educated Americans, uh, their peak earnings come later in life than in the past. It takes longer to kind of fully enter the workforce. Um, so there is still something going on there with skills acquisition and training. Um, but another thing, which uh, which is uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, is actually the uh, the vast array of special penalties and taxes that we put on working class marriage. How do you mean? Well, let's say you get the earned income tax credit. Okay. It's great as long as you're not married. Ah. But if you get married, you lose thousands of dollars of benefits. Hmm. Let's say you get married to the the parent of children in your house. Mm -hmm. The earned income tax credit says you all should not get married. You should not live together. Hmm. Right? Same thing with housing vouchers. Same thing with SNAP. Same same thing with Medicaid. Uh, Same thing with Obamacare premium supplements. These programs are fine. Like, they don't hurt... It doesn't hurt marriage to pay for a kid's food, but it does alter people's odds of getting married to pay for food on the condition that they not get married.
2: Right, and so this is, I mean, again, a, a classic, like, 90s policy debate was about marriage penalties in the income tax code. And a lot of them were done away with. Right, and that's but been largely... But not the EITC. <laughs> I mean, it's, right, but so so the, the like, middle class... Sort we of did away with middle-class tax. Has, food has, has yep. largely gone away, but yep. the um, means-tested... Has gotten bigger. ...programs, because yep. there's more of them, There's right? more of them, and EITC has been expanded several times, and
3: I'm a big... As an economist, I'm a big fan of the EITC. It's a good way to deliver benefits to, to people to you know, help them make ends meet for honest work, but... You know, maybe we should have thought about what it would do to give people four or five thousand bucks not to be married.
2: Right. And so this is essentially um, the penalty arises because of how the means test is. Right. It's, It's the
3: eligibility rules, it's not the program itself. Right. And in fact, you actually see this comparatively with other countries. Especially if you compare various Anglophone countries, which, you know, we like to compare because various similar cultural and immigration backgrounds. The countries that more explicitly penalized uh, marriage Mm -hmm. um, by yanking benefits when you get married, uh, in fact, had greater increases uh, in particularly non-marital childbearing from the 1960s to the present day. So the UK explicitly had extra child benefits for unmarried parents. Okay, I mean, it makes sense on the basis of need that you might say, well, there's not... Well, if you're a 1950 Brit, you might say, well, there's not a man in the house. And so they need extra help. Right. Well, that isn't exactly the world we live in anymore. So it took until the 90s for them to phase out this sort of extra benefit for these, you know, I guess, women that they just, as a matter of law, regarded as as helpless. Right. Um, So— the UK had a much greater increase in, in non-marital childbearing than we did. And you you sort of put all the countries together and you see this fairly clear that a significant amount of the rise in non-marital childbearing um, and which is largely about a decline in marriage um, can be accounted for by the presence or absence of marriage penalties, not welfare programs generally, Mm -hmm. but marriage penalties in welfare programs.
2: And so if you're at least a a progressive-minded person, you could eliminate these by essentially making the program more generous, right? Um, I I guess you'd have to, you know, get into the numbers. Uh, It
3: costs about $400 billion a year. I did the math on fixing, like, EATC, Section 8, uh, SNAP, um, uh, Medicaid, like, all these different programs. What does it cost? It's, I mean... (sighs) I did the math, kind of back of the envelope-ish, but minimum you're talking like 200 billion a year. Mm -hmm. You you can run up to like six or seven hundred, (laughs) right? Which is to say that we're really imposing um, a difficulty on these families that is like a a, you know 500 billion dollar thumb on the scales against
2: working class people marrying each other. Right. Well, I mean, it helps explain that the scale of the effect is that there's a lot of money involved, right? It, it does. And it's, it, So it's, a you know, I mean, this is, of course, uh, we're going to go on to talk about this, but this is sort of the disconnect in American politics is that the kinds of people most likely to be concerned about these things are also the kinds of people least likely to be interested in like spending large sums of money. That has historically been the case.
3: Uh, it is, <laughs> as you know, um, and uh, it is uh, definitely uh, my my political mission to nudge that needle a bit mm-hmm. uh, to encourage, uh, let's call it, a new fusionism uh, between um, a, a more generous family policy and, for me personally, a more uh, conservative outlook on society. But yeah, you're right that historically, um, the people who've been talking a lot about uh, the importance of you know stable families and households and marriage were not the folks saying yeah let's let's uh, let's spend some more money on uh, Section Eight housing
2: vouchers. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a break and, and then I want to talk about some some big ideas.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own.
2: So my my recollection is that a bunch of countries have, from time to time, sort of tried programs that, like, pay people money to—I I don't know, pay people money to yep. have babies, but th- there's money Cash and there's babies kids. involved. Yep. Um, and uh, my sort of, like, hazy recollection of this is that the results have been pretty disappointing. Is that right? So— a lot of countries
3: have have done uh, have implemented what we would call pronatalist policies, policies that are explicitly aimed to encourage births. Mm-hmm. And generally, what we find is that when new pronatal benefits are put in place, mm-hmm. birth rates do rise mm-hmm. by a little bit mm-hmm. <laughs> that it takes a lot of money, uh, estimates for a marginal additional child. Mm-hmm. um, so you know, a child who otherwise would not have been born in some counterfactual. Uh, estimates range; it costs between um, like a hundred thousand dollars and a million dollars, which is a fairly large amount of money to get one kid. Now, what's really happening is you're spending two thousand dollars on every child, and you know, one in every fifty families or sixty families says, "Oh, okay, we can now afford to have one more child." Um, but uh, but the the cost per marginal child is relatively high.
2: Right. So this is, I, I in case people miss this, right? It's because without Even absent such a policy, lots of people have children anyway. So when you create the new pronatalist policy, a lot of the money winds up going to uh, duplicative. Children who would have been born anyway. Right. right. So it it winds up making the marginal child look incredibly
3: expensive. Now, I should know, I I always thought that this was really expensive. And then I was speaking to someone who studies... uh, Late in life health programs, Medicare, right. or Medicaid, the cost to save a year of life. Mm-hmm. Um, one quality adjusted life year uh, in Medicare and Medicaid is between like forty and ninety thousand dollars. Right. So what we're really saying here is you can you can it costs about as much to get one extra human being who will live probably at least 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. 70, 80, 90 years, um, as extending uh, a retiree's life by one to ten years.
2: Right. So okay. So in in quality adjusted life years terms, it's a cheap uh, way pay, to get pay, life pay, years. Paying for babies is more. Um, if you're a sort of but
3: preventing death, of course, has its own benefits aside for you know. I I don't want to say they're totally equivalent, but it was pointed out to me by someone else that actually you know in, in policy cost terms, that's not so bad.
2: Yeah. This is maybe a. a... Future perfect podcast. <laughs> Sometimes we get to get the freaky utilitarians in and, and think about <laughs> oh, whether no. we should what we should what we should be doing with this. I, I do think that's a good you know sense of scale, right? Also, I mean, if you think about just simply like the out of pocket costs to a parent of a child's life, uh, two hundred
3: and sixty thousand dollars, according to the most recent USDA estimate,
2: right? So the idea that the lower bound would be around a hundred thousand is Pretty not reasonable. that right. It's yeah. Kids, kids are expensive, so programs to generate kids are also, are also expensive.
3: <laughs> now, I should note that there are some—there are very real success stories. Um, Canada, actually, uh, specifically Ke- Quebec, had a baby bonus um, that basically it was paid when the child was born in a lump sum. Uh, Australia did a similar thing, and both of these programs had pretty clearly demonstrated effects and were comparatively cost-effective. Hmm. So a large lump sum payment right after birth is much more cost effective than a child tax credit paid over 17 years. Now, this tends to rub progressives the wrong way. Uh They say, this is weird. We're just paying like, this is, what are we doing? We're just dropping $10,000 on having a baby. But there's a neat way that you can do this. You can say, well, hold on, on. we're going to extend FMLA unpaid leave by another two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And we're going to give you a $10,000 Leave compensation bonus when the child is born. Okay. Okay. So it's paid family leave. It's it's also a baby bonus.
2: It is interesting. I mean, there is like people people are susceptible to different kinds of uh, framing effects, shall we say, uh, about about some of these things. Where I think right now uh, progressives are very interested in paid family leave,
3: mm-hmm. and which is which is a it's a baby bonus. It's it's right. a lot of money delivered in the first few months of a
2: child's life. And I mean, when you think about so the upfront payment versus the the stream of benefits, right. It, it makes sense, um, not just in well. For one thing, people sort of discount hyperbolically, but yeah. also um, having a, a, a child myself, it's when they are new. There is both a lot of upfront costs associated with time kids, cost, money cost, and it's a big drag on your ability to earn mm-hmm. money. Right? Once I mean the
3: the mom the mommy penalty literature. On uh, what happens to women's wages after work is very clear on this, right? Uh, that it really makes sense to to kind of say, okay, we're going to really dump a lot of money right there.
2: And and then the other thing is that the, I mean, I don't I don't know, but it's like the biological cycle of when it's good to have kids and the economic cycle of where your earnings go. They don't always match. Don't don't line up that well. There are many um, people who
3: would say, I'd love to have a kid right now. You know, I'm I'm in years where it's easy to do so, but I can't afford it. And then when they can afford it. It's late and it's it's a lot more expensive. There's more reproductive technology involved. And there's a place where a lot of American families experience a disappointment that I
2: think is worth considering from right. a policy angle. And, and a lot just normal people of child having age yeah. are going to be earning more money. Ten yeah. years after yes. their first kid is born, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. They're gonna um, both both because of like like mom penalty stuff, but also also dads. Even people who don't take any time out of the workforce, the natural development of your career is that when you're in your late thirties, early forties, yeah. you're, you're gonna be you're gonna be doing better. So you know that's a case for for doing it upfront. Sure. Um, And so what have we seen from – you wrote a piece about uh, Hungary, uh, which has (laughs) one of these – no, but, you know, I mean, well, people have bad things to say about uh, Orban. but I uh, have bad things to say about Orban. But in theory, this is supposed to be like the new, you know, post-liberal nationalism. Um,
3: So what did they come up with there? Okay. So Hungary has been – um, very prominent on in the American right for their family benefits. Anytime they do a new family benefit, it's on Tucker Carlson, right? It's it's in all the, right, the conservative magazines. And a while back, I sort of said, wow, this is really interesting. But then I noticed their fertility rate wasn't rising. In fact, right. it's been falling in recent years. Hmm. So, man, this is really a problem. The academic literature says this shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? Well, it turns out what they're really doing is they've cut a lot of family programs, and they are taking that money and they are redirecting it to a narrow subset of families in the form of subsidized loans for specific consumption decisions. So hmm. if you want to buy a big a big van, there's okay. a subsidized loan for it. And, you know, it won't surprise you to learn that there's a large van making company in Hungary. <laughs> if you would like new housing, now they've changed the rules now, you can use it for some used housing, but at first it was only new housing, so construction industry, you could get a special loan as long as you had a certain number of kids. Hmm. And now there's a, a special loan that you can get for just general consumption when you have a kid. But the way it works is you get the loan for the first kid, and then you must have at least three kids uh, to continue to get the loan subsidy. And if you don't have three kids in a certain amount of time, you got to pay the loan back. Okay, Right? So it's like debt peonage for fertility. Um, and what this is really about is that the government is just backstopping a very large consumer credit expansion for Hungarian banks. Right. Right? So this is not pronatalism. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know what this is, but it's it's not about having babies be born. It's about... You know specific Hungarian families who are going to have lots of kids, getting, you know, very generous credit.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess in some ways it's like it's more simplistic, right? Like it's straightforward approach, right? On the marriage front, is you have to just like pay what it costs to not just to not have the penalties. penalty. Um, on the basic childbearing front, it's like just pay some money. You give. You give some money. So Latvia has uh, has a pretty generous suite
3: of uh, of child benefits, mm-hmm. um, and Latvia is also explicitly pronatal. Hmm. Um and they actually also have right right now they have a fairly uh, a fairly right leaning um, government. Um, so it mystifies me why why conservatives haven't looked there because Latvia just says look everybody's going to get these benefits.
2: Okay.
3: Now for your first kid the benefit is this for your second kid is a little higher for your third kid it's a little higher and so it's kind of at each one they're like well we know it's a it's a hassle to have the extra kid but really. You know, so
2: does does that work, that it increasing marginalism, marginalism?
3: It does. Yeah. So a lot of research shows that that two ways to make your spending there, – there are three big ways to make pronatal spending more effective. One we already talked about, mm-hmm. lump it up front. Big paychecks are high, highly salient. The second is parity targeting. Um, that if you want the most babies for your buck, which I don't know that you should. I think there's a benefit to even neutral programs that don't discriminate by family type. Right. But if if you want that, targeting second, third, fourth parity kids tends to be more uh, more effective. And the third one is interesting. There was a brand new paper that just came out. Well, the final the final version just came out. The working paper has been circulating for years. I'm um, suggesting that if you could explicitly target payments to women, that it's right. cheaper. Um, Because of basically household negotiation over who stays home and stuff like that, right? So the argument is that your 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 best program uh, in terms of maximum babies per dollar, so to speak, would be a giant baby bonus paid up front only for third or higher children into a bank account that only females could access.
2: That's probably not a program you can have in a liberal society. Yeah, I I saw that paper about the intrafamily bargaining. It was interesting. And it was... I I didn't really understand what they were saying at the end of the day. So um, since like I I mean I so the the point for for those listening at home was that in effect um, in the vast majority of cases mom winds up uh, bearing more of the, the 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 time costs of of child rearing. So if the mom specifically could receive extra financial support, uh, this would work. But then I don't know of. How would you do that,
3: right? I, how, how do you make sure that only model- so they they did do a, a calibration where they they did a run where it basically said what if you can't designate who gets it and it makes it a little more expensive, um, but the the point of all this is just that um, yeah you can target parity and that is a little more cost effective. Fundamentally, I don't have an objection to targeting parity. It is a little more cost effective. I think there is something to be said. Um, For it. At the same time, you know, I understand that people have objections to non-neutrality in terms of family type. Right. Um, And so I don't want to get into arguing whether we should have 10% higher for the second kid if we can agree on every kid.
2: Right. Well, it's just it's interesting to me because I feel like a lot of – uh, some thinking on this seems based on the opposite assumption that there's like a declining marginal cost of extra kids because yeah. you know because kids share toys and and get hand me down so clothes so there is a and, declining and like there is a
3: declining cost for each additional child which is why. Um, adding that extra nudge is even more effective, right? Mm. So yeah, they're cheaper. And so if you nudge it a little harder, you get sort of even more bang for your buck. I see. Right? So that that extra $2,000 stretches even farther for the third child than it did for the first. Oh,
2: that's interesting.
3: Right? So you get more baby per, per dollar of, of subsidy. So
2: you now how about things like, like childcare or, or preschool, stuff like that that's not, you know, it, these are, I, I mean, I guess yeah, yeah, yeah. the other way to think about it, right, is like mo- most people don't think of this as like quote unquote pronatalist right, policy. Right, right. But if we had no public schools, then yeah, having would, children would be prohibitively expensive right. for everyone. It'd be very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, so uh there is research suggesting that greater spending on childcare and public education may increase childbearing. Um however it's not a lot of it. Um it's mostly pretty aggregate level mm-hmm. or highly theoretical or not really very experimentally based because how do you test this? How do you be like, well, we implemented daycare and six years later, people had babies. Like, so it's a bit tricky to test. Now, I think on the whole, yeah, if you spend more money on kids' stuff, it makes it cheaper to have kids. That probably means more kids. At the same time, there are a lot of countries spending a whole lot of money on kids' stuff and not getting a lot of kids from it. Hmm. Um, so for example, there is a lot of research on, on paid leave. And the research suggests that the paid part of paid leave makes people have more babies. Mm -hmm. The leave part of paid leave makes people have less babies. So it ends up about a wash.
2: (laughs) Wait, Um, so what do you mean the leave part makes people have less babies?
3: Increased attachment to work reduces future fertility.
2: I see. So reduces
3: future birth rates. So paid leave means you're more likely to return to work. I see. And if you return to work, you're less likely— to have a subsequent child. Whereas if you stay out of work, you're more likely to say, well, you know, I already am providing childcare at home, you know, providing it for a second child is not necessarily so much more expensive.
2: I see, so it's not the leave exactly, it's the guaranteed return. Sure,
3: okay, fair enough, yeah. I think of leave as basically a guaranteed return option. Sure, sure. But uh, but yeah, it's it's the guarantee of return um that and again this i'm in favor of paid leave mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. it's a good thing there's a compelling argument about parent child bonding about just a public ethic of of care that that is in that is uh wrapped up in paid li- in in uh, paid leave i'm in favor of it but i don't think we should be making an argument that paid leave is going to change people's childhood. right so behavior. but so
2: the, the the part of it that 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 would help in that is regard the is just attaching money yeah it's the fact that there's money connected and, to and, it and so and so then that means that the um sort of wage replacement rate in a program design is actually very important, yeah so actually right? there was
3: a great study in Germany where they changed the the way that paid leave was calculated so uh, instead of making it capped they uh, they said that it'll be Proportional to income. Mm -hmm. So they made it kind of regressive, actually, that wealthier people or higher earners got more. And they found this was highly effective. Mm -hmm. That actually, this uh, greatly increased birth rates among women who benefited from the reform, so Mm -hmm. higher income women, and it reduced fertility rates among women who lost from the reform, so Hmm. lower income women. Now, I don't know that we should have a regressive uh, payment structure for paid leave, but it it, it proved the point that wait, wage replacement rates well, matter.
2: Wait, I mean, the the regressive structure, well, I don't know. That's That seems like a, a bridge too far for some other reasons. But yeah, this is one reason why it's relevant, right? Because we come in again and again, I think, in this conversation to, actually all the time in the weeds, to targeting conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's if you try to target EITC and other benefits, specifically at the neediest families, you create these marriage penalties, right? Right. If you try to target like baby bonuses or some Mm -hmm. child support payments simply to the families most objectively uh, facing some some kind of objective material deprivation, then you leave out a lot of middle class people who are still, it's not that, that they're like, living in the streets sure. but they are sensitive to the large financial costs of yeah, children absolutely. and so you have to be whether you are willing to dedicate financial resources to families who may not quote unquote need it mm-hmm. right makes a big difference in terms of uh family structure
3: absolutely and this is why uh, I really feel quite strongly that when we talk about these benefits i say benefits cuz that's what people uh, comprehend but I generally try to refer to them as something like a parenting wage mm-hmm. right that what we're talking about here is not needy families needing child benefits what we're talking about is the fact that we think that parenting that raising children is a worthwhile contribution raising children is a worthwhile contribution to society it is a form of work it should be paid right um that this is uh actually what this is about and this helps explain especially to conservatives who I think have you know ultimately philosophically fair concerns about cost here um that you know yes it costs money but we're not paying for no work right we're paying for work we're paying for some of the most important work in our
2: society it's it's as important as whatever it is that jeff bezos does with his time mm-hmm. so so i, I mean and then from from the progressive perspective right something a lot of democrats in congress have gotten interested in is the idea of a um uh what do you call it, a, a universal child benefit yep. right and this is discussed in their circles primarily for its impact on child poverty, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Which is, I mean, large. You can read the the Vox explainers on that. There, it raises the the question of targeting, because obviously, uh, to narrowly reduce child poverty, you don't need to give me a child tax credit. Right. Um, But- it's still expensive mm-hmm. to everybody to to have children right yeah so i
3: mean it, i understand the focus on child poverty i think it's i mean it's important and pressing and there's a whole ethic of opportunity involved here that relates to child poverty but i generally think that universal benefits are the way to go i mean mm-hmm. yes they cost money but They also mean that you don't have the next six generations of opposition party leaders trying to find a way to chip down on it, Mm -hmm, right? Right, That they're benefiting from it. And especially where there's a compelling case where a lot of conservatives can be brought on board with this kind of policy, are already on board with this kind of policy, if it is clear that it is not just, you know, a handout for people not working, but that we're giving this to literally anyone who mm-hmm. is shouldering the cost of, you know, having children. Uh, this this is something that uh, it build it creates buy-in not just in a well, everyone gets it so everyone
2: has a material interest, but it creates philosophical buy-in. Well, and, and then I think the way I would bring poverty into the picture is, you know, we talked about the fact that there's a certain amount of like quote unquote waste in in the child payment, because you're you're paying families for kids they would be having anyway. Yeah. But some of that is going to alleviate is alleviating material deprivation right sure. that currently exists. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the the United States has a much, uh, at least a much higher rate of relative poverty uh, than you see in other countries, and that's because primarily we don't have that kind of yeah. um, uh, monetary support for kids. Sure. So, hey, have you looked at at what's what's the, the the Senate Democrats' bill on this?
3: I wrote an extensive review of it for the Institute for Family Studies. There we you were, go. We were reasonably favorable. Um, you know, we had a few technical concerns, a few like basically specific bill language concerns with a couple of the exact phase out calculations, you know, some, basically some little things. But in principle, mm-hmm. um, my take um, and the take of every time someone at IFS has written on this subject has been like, in principle, this is a good idea. Let's work it out. Let's so what,
2: what what are the concerns?
3: So they undid the change in phase out that was put in the new child tax credit. They okay. reloaded it to save on cost. Um they also, I'm trying to remember exactly. Uh the new child tax credit you need a social security number for. Okay. Um they undid that for the new, for the their proposed child benefit. That's right. right. So it's this like buried argument about immigration. Right. I mean, <sighs> If you would like to get to sixty votes, you will be requiring Social Security nothing. Sure, sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it just depends on whether you re- really want to really want to do this or not. Um, but uh, there were a few others, but most of most of the piece that I wrote on it was actually speaking to conservatives mm-hmm. about why this this really was not this is not a threat. This is actually something we can get on board with. And then there's also the funding question. Sure. How do we pay for it? I have all sorts of thoughts about that, but uh, but that's, that's not inherent to the bill
2: itself. Sure, okay, so let's take a break and then let's talk about uh, airy ideological concerns.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference.
2: Okay, so in real world Congress, like pay for is very important, very contentious. Uh, everybody has their has their taxes they don't want raised, and, and and the ones that they do. But in the in the realm of ideas, uh, there was like a Washington Post article recently, which um, I think made the argument that uh, essentially, like all concern about uh, Americans. Uh, Having too few children is a sublimated form of white nationalism, mm-hmm. um, which, I i mean, I think is worth talking about. I think about, it's worth taking very uh, seriously. Because, I mean, we have yeah. discussed, you know, in previous episodes of the podcast, there is a sort of, like, great replacement. Mm-hmm. Uh, eugenic pronatalism is a very real—it exists. Mm-hmm. Acting like it doesn't would be ridiculous. As does eugenic—I mean, I guess the— I, I would temper the analysis there that like eugenic antinatalism has also been a big theme yes, in American life. It has. And and part of this is that the Uni- the United States is not Europe, right? And so the United States has always been a racially diverse yeah. country. And um so these concerns about whose babies mm-hmm. like have been with us for a long time on yep. on all sides of the of yep. the argument. Um but so are are you a white nationalist? Can I <laughs> Can I clear no, the air? I am not. Okay. And, and just just so you disavow. Uh,
3: in whatever terms uh, you prefer. Uh, but but more importantly, um, I think when we talk about raising the birth rate, oftentimes people say, well, this is just Steve King's, you know, other people's baby white nationalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hold on. In any plausible world, the only way to raise birth rates in America is to do it with more Hispanic, Asian, Black, in Native American babies. In fact, the biggest decline in fertility in recent years has been among Hispanics and Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So when I say I'm worried about falling fertility, I mean I'm worried that not enough Hispanic and Native American and African American babies are being born. And actually demographically, when you sort of sit down and do the math on population change, lower fertility rates mm-hmm. push farther out the date at which we become a non-Hispanic white minority country.
2: Right. So if you if you sort of check your, your tables, Pew has a good thing where mm-hmm. they, they do the uh, median age of different ethnic sure. groups in the United States, right? And so the median white person is like mid-40s. Right. Uh, They're basically past reproductive, uh, out of most of their reproductive life. At uh, this point, right. And African-Americans, a- even Asians are fairly old but still younger yeah. than white people. Uh, African-Americans, consider younger yeah. and, and Latinos considerably younger So high fertility rates that.
3: on that tend to racially diversify the right, country, right. whereas so there, low fertility is sort of an ossification of current racial mixes.
2: Right. And, and so in a, in a practical sense, I think the politics, like the political problem is almost the opposite direction right. that, you know, a, a question always is, you know... A, are these our kids that we are supporting? Are these our families that we are supporting? And in particular, there's been a, you know, I, I think a racialized mm-hmm. uh, concern about giving financial support to um, low income families because many of those families are not white, right? I mean, if you want to understand the the history of the development of the American welfare state, it's not it's not that. Um, We've been we've been pushing uh, family support payments uh, no. to to sort of keep keep the white race up. It's it's very much the opposite, right? I mean, I think there is a lot of uh, I'm not as
3: well read in, but I believe there's a lot of political science research suggesting that uh, racial resentment and racial and racial resentment paired with racial diversity. Um, is a is a pretty good predictor to the point of it it very well may be causal um, at lower state level support for uh, public insurance and and other other forms of social welfare um, that this is this is this is fairly clearly what it's usually been in America but that's it, it it is possible that positive expansion of benefits could be some kind of front for white supremacy like. I don't want to act like that's categorically impossible. Sure, sure. But like in practice, if most of the people receiving the benefit they're advocating for are not white, and if the effect of implementing the benefit is to um, is to make the country on net more diverse, right. and if doing so is about helping individuals achieve clearly stated individual goals as is the case with desired fertility and if in if it is also in fact the case that non-white individuals actually express higher fertility ideals which right. is also the case then like what what are we talking about you sure. like where's where's the white supremacy right now if we were saying like well we're we're only going to give benefits to white people
2: yes, this no, would obviously. be white
3: supremacy or or even you could do this a back door right you could be like we're only going to give benefits to uh, married families of uh Fifty thousand inco- dollars in income or higher. Sure, it's sure, like, sure. Okay, we see you. Yes, yes. Um, but, uh, but like that's not where the conversation is right now. I mean, the most radical you get on that front on the right right now in terms of, you know, any actual real thing is like should the phase out, uh, should the phase in for the child tax credit be at like two thousand dollars or six thousand mm-hmm, dollars? Mm-hmm. Like, the number of people impacted by this is really small. Um, and in this, it's in some sense, it's a debate over an accounting reality right. as much as anything else.
2: Right, and then the, so then the flip side of this is that you know, I mean, I think a lot of people on the left are like they're they're watching The Handmaid's Tale on on Hulu, and they are maybe uh, moving to the big city and getting crap from their aunt about when when are they having kids? And yep. Yep. Uh, I mean, you and I. I come from different different places and might be having a different discussion in a world where people were telling general social survey, like, I I only, I only want to have one. So I encountered this problem, actually. So I, I live in Hong Kong, and I wrote an article
3: for South China Morning Post mm-hmm. um, about fertility policy in Hong Kong. And the average woman in Hong Kong only wants to have about 1.5 or 1.6 mm-hmm. kids. And they end up having a little bit below that. But the point is, it's very low desired fertility. Right. So I wrote, I'm on record on this. In a context where um, where desired fertility is low, there's a there's a serious question about not only it won't be effective to throw money at the problem; that's not going to work in terms of raising fertility. But second of all, it's not clear that it's ethical um, right. that if you're trying to get people, like trying to force people to have babies that they don't want to have. I don't. I you need a pretty compelling reason
2: i would I would say you need more, let's say, more than a rational basis test. I, um, and is this basically like America's more religious than Hong Kong? Is that what that comes? No, down No, So to?
3: actually, uh, desired fertility is generally above two throughout most of Europe, ok. Um, low fertility desires below below fertility desires below two are extremely rare. Hmm. The only documented cases that I've been able to find, um, and i've I've looked are um China mainland China and Hong Kong today hmm. some surveys of Taiwan but mm-hmm. others disagree and they're barely below two mm-hmm. and then uh post-Soviet states during the 90s okay so oh oh sorry also Malta Malta but that could be small
2: sample size but <laughs> <laughs> don't know a lot about Malta I'm going to I'm going to have to yeah. admit um, but
3: but so I mean it's it's often a society it's it has generally indicated some kind of state uh some form of
2: issue with state stability or repression Mm -hmm, right well that make that makes some some sense um so then the i guess i'm like a like a housing guy right um and this this just also seems like an obvious i would not say the reason to rethink like american housing policy Mm -hmm. uh but it definitely seems like a a relevant consideration right that um if you if you I don't know, like kids take up space. People want bigger houses when, yep. when they have kids. And um, when your your community doesn't allow that, then it, some of that it's it's hard is well, to pe- people move away. But some of it yeah. is well, people really like it, the, the city they live in. So, I mean, there, there's
3: a lot of research showing that, um, that, first of all, American families are experiencing housing stress. Right. Uh, Over the last 20 years, the share of income that American family – USDA tracks spending on children. Spending on children in the housing subcategory has risen something like – 37%, 37 percent but prices of housing have risen about 70 percent over that same window which suggests that in fact there's a housing crunch for families yeah They're and living we saw in smaller when, when, spaces or, when,
2: when Jenny Schutz was was on the, the the podcast that um you know housing housing distress is very concentrated very, yeah, yeah, yeah. among families with yeah, children yeah, yeah. It's, which it's, it makes sense like they
3: yeah. need more it's space. very real and the research suggests that when there are sharp increases in housing costs fertility falls um and there's also research showing that when land use regulations are tightened, fertility falls. Mm-hmm. Um, there are explicit zoning codes that zone out families that you know, through minimum occupancy rules or sometimes literally age rules about who can live in a neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, which are done to, you know to ensure like aging with dignity communities. Right. I'm thinking so- Anti-family.
2: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there are all kinds of these sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit rules. DC's rule requiring uh, extra degrees and certification for child care. Right. Um, I mean, sometimes it's less—DC was relatively subtle in what they were getting at. Some cities are rather less subtle—
2: um, and they just uh, deny zoning permits to daycares, right? And so, I, I mean, a, a, another like a like a zoning topic that is is near and dear to my heart um, is you know if you talk to developers, right? When you limit the number of floors basically that they Mm -hmm. can build in their new apartment, condo, whatever, um, it becomes very, very, very revenue maximizing to dedicate that square footage Mm -hmm. to junior one bedroom and studio Mm -hmm. units, right? Because there's like a declining marginal price of square footage, right? But if you tap out... The sort of market's ability to absorb those units because like lots of people don't want to There's only so many people who want to live in a studio apartment, right? At a certain point, you force them to do the inefficient thing and build multi-bedroom dwellings. But if you can only build a little bit, it all goes into houses for single people, which even though I have never heard a policymaker explicitly say, "I don't want anybody with children moving to my city," it is from a, a property tax. I mean, standpoint, it happens in neighborhood efficient.
3: meetings all the time. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's actually quite common in neighborhood meetings. Uh, sometimes you get this strange thing where someone will stand up and say, well, this will affect the neighborhood in this way. And it's hard to tell whether they're talking about the race of the people coming in or the age. Right. Um, and you think neither one of those is okay. Um, but uh, um, I think you do hear it explicitly sometimes, but usually it is implicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's it's actually unintentional. Right. Um, it's, you know, well, we want to make sure that there's a, a certain amount of parking available. Uh, So that families can find a place to park. Right. I mean, okay, you know, nice
2: thought. But they needed housing more, right? So, well, and you also hear—I mean, this has been a thing in in Montgomery County and in, in the suburbs here, where they say, "Well, you know, if we build this new stuff, the schools are going to be overcrowded." Yep. Um, school which, overcrowded. Which is it's like—it's objectively true. If there were more children, <laughs> they would take up more space in school. But it's not like beyond human comprehension that you would build extra schools. It—it it turns out it is possible to build schools. And traditionally, right, I mean, it's not like uh, when the pilgrims came here, <laughs> they just found all these school buildings every place. Um, they were all overcrowded once upon a time, <laughs> right? And that's um, that's sort of how they, how they got here. Um, I guess another thing I wonder about sometimes is like parenting, like ideology, right? Like it seems like modern day parents like do more, but that then makes it harder to have children. So there is some
3: research suggesting that parents spend more time parenting mm-hmm. than in the past. It comes out of time use data, um but the change is really 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 sharp in I believe it's the late 90s we it goes from like flat around a few hours a day per kid to like 6 or something. And so <laughs> I my inclination is to think this is actually a data problem, not a not a real thing. But we do see some More clear and objective measures. For example, the share of children that are breastfed uh, is much higher now than in the past. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of you know public health literature about this, whatever. But we can, we should all recognize that this is this a time commitment, right? This this takes more time than than formula. There are other things you know. You can look at a number of private lessons being hired out. You can look at any number of these things to see that intensive parenting is more of a norm now, Mm -hmm. and. This is, I mean, it's a good thing. It's good for people to spend time with their kids. That's great. I love it that people will invest in their children. At the same time, it creates a norm. Right. And uh, norms, people tend to respond to the superstructure uh, for a life script. Right. If everyone else is establishing the norm that you do this, then you do this.
2: Right. Pe- people want to be good parents. Exactly. Whatever,
3: whatever that's understood. To right. Me they mean. want to be perceived as good parents. Right. They want to be good parents, and they also want to be seen as good parents. Um. And so this this does definitely um increase the time, psychological, and sometimes money cost of parenting. I mean, a simple one is food. Uh-huh. Right. That you you shouldn't give your child Pepsi. You should go and buy them a fruit juice that has the exact same amount of sugar in it, but that's. You know, it's fine to give the juice pouch. That's
2: not. uh, Oh, you need to get to more advanced yuppie parenting circles. There's nothing fine about giving kids juice.
3: There. Oh, are we past juice now? (laughs) Just you just got to make them drink water. Oh, okay. Well, okay. That is cheaper. That's great.
2: (laughs) Um, But I mean, but you get
3: this where it's like you you have to like be doing this this treadmill of like each new round of like special food and the thing your kids should be eating and the thing they should be drinking. It's like. Child mortality has risen in recent years. It hasn't fallen. So whatever these new trends are, I don't know that I really think they're making a huge difference.
2: Mm. Um, no, I mean, I, I think of actually like, like screen time moral panic as like yep. a big example of this, right? Because sure. obviously the simplest way to get children of not all ages, but, but there, there's, there's a range of ages in which like if you need a kid to do something that is safe. For a little bit of time, while somebody gets something done, like let them let them watch Stinky and Dirty, is is highly effective, right? And if that becomes stigmatized, then the uh, cost, whether explicit monetary cost of childcare or just the implicit time cost of dealing with them in a more active way, gets really really high. And you know, when the Academy of Pediatrics comes out with like recommendations about this, I don't think. I mean, it's both that yeah. the research base on the screen time is, is a little dodgy, but more to the point, like, they're not thinking, like, yeah. in a, in equilibrium about the impact yeah. on society these so recommendations.
3: So, screen time is one where I really, really wish that we had—honestly, um, that, that we had better data right? because there's a lot that we don't know. Now, on the one hand, I'm inclined to say that, you know, elites should preach what they practice, mm-hmm. that— Uh, most well-educated families recognize that when their kid is on the TV all day or on the cell phone all day or whatever, that it it doesn't actually achieve their parenting goals. Right. And it makes sense for us to then say to other people like, hey, like maybe this is a norm worth emulating. At the same time, I think you're right that when we create these – Uh, these expectations that if you don't do this, you're a bad parent. If you, this is a failure of parenting, that you're not really parenting if your kid watches TV. People have time stresses. People Mm -hmm. have other things in their life. People have, um, they have other needs. So I think that there is, um, there is a balance between saying, you know, okay, this might actually have some child welfare effect. Maybe we want to care about. Um, But then at the other, other side saying, you know, Whatever we're doing is not reducing child mortality, so it, right, it's not having that
2: much of a child. All right, so be, <laughs> so before this uh, this just turns into a uh, uh, weeds parenting hour. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really need different guests for that. Anyway, uh, so we're we're gonna. Um, I I, I want to let you go, uh, but but before that happens, uh, is there is there anything else you know I, I should ask you? You you want to talk about here? What to what do the weedsers need to know about like ba- baby policy?
3: I mean, I thought, I think you got good questions. I would just reiterate the uh, the idea that wanting there to be more humans in America is somehow a white supremacist conspiracy is nonsense. There you go. It just is.
2: Okay. Nonsense. Okay. So thank you, Lyman Stone, uh, Institute for Family Studies, American Enterprise Institute. Uh, thanks to our sponsors and thanks as always to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And The Weeds will return on Tuesday.